Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has done it again. He has shown no leadership once again in Columbus with the introduction of the new legislative maps. It's the first subject we'll be talking about on this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleague Leila Tassi and editorial board member Lisa Garvin. Later, we'll be joined by our sports manager, Dave Campbell, to talk a little bit about what he expects from the Browns. Happy Friday at last. I got to tell you guys, I'm exhausted because I've been kind of mostly off this week doing hard labor, painting and stuff. I can't wait to get back to my real job. <laughs> really? I thought you loved that stuff. <laughs> I, I do, but, but you know, it's it wears you out, man. You know, it's like all day long, every day yeah. this week, killing myself. And uh, I'll be kind of glad to just get back into the groove after a week of that. Although I can't. I really, it's been beautiful. I've been outside. It's been beautiful weather. The dog. Yeah, you've had a really nice week for outdoor work. That's true. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's been perfect. So let's begin. The Republicans finally introduced the legislative district maps they've been working on in secret, and they confirmed the worst fears of people fighting gerrymandering. How do the proposed Ohio House and Senate districts break down? Leila Tassi, it's really a shame that Governor Mike DeWine, Auditor Keith Faber, Secretary of State Frank LaRose, House Leader Bob Cup, Senate President Matt Huffman, they all just abandoned the will of the people here. They completely betrayed the voters who put in this system to stop gerrymandering. What do we have? This is such a depressing day for democracy in Ohio. The maps the Republican Ohio legislative leaders introduced yesterday preserve their veto-proof supermajority. And hours later, Republicans on the Ohio Redistricting Commission voted to formally introduce it. The vote was five to two with the Democrats voting against it. So according to the analysts, the Republican plan would create districts likely to award Republicans 67 of 99 House seats and 25 of 33 Senate seats. That's around 66 percent in each chamber. That's almost exactly what it is now. And it would far exceed the Republicans' recent historical share of the vote in the state. And that violates the rules of the redistricting process. Over the past 10 years, Republicans have won 54% of the votes in the 16 federal and non-judicial state races contested statewide. That's the guideline that is supposed to be used here. And the maps that the Democrats drew up were much more commensurate with that. This, this Republican plan could, could get passed by next Wednesday in time to meet the September 15th deadline, but to, con- to be confirmed for 10 years, the maps need to win Democratic support. Republicans say they're willing to work with the Democrats to fix the maps to their satisfaction, but if that doesn't happen, the maps would likely be approved for only four years. And, and if, if we've learned anything from the Donald Trump presidency, it's that a lot of damage can be done in four years. So <laughs> I don't see that as well, much of a consolation. <laughs> the, the, the thing that is mind boggling here, other than that they did it, I mean, it's just such an overreach and it's stupid and it's going to be in the courts that they're picking which parts of the constitutional change mm-hmm. to adhere to. The constitutional right. change we put in says it's got to be commensurate with the recent vote. And they said, yeah, we look at that as a guideline. Shame on them. Right. The other thing I don't get, Layla, is that the governor and Frank LaRose were both really kind of screwed by the supermajority overcoming vetoes. Mike DeWine was trying to manage the coronavirus <laughs> 
And the legislature right. was his undoing. You would think for that reason right. alone, he would not want them to have a supermajority. Right. But he caved. I mean, I look, I, I know there's there's five Republicans on this commission, but Mike DeWine is the governor of the state. He should have shown leadership. He's completely fallen down on managing the coronavirus. I mean, he's just doing a terrible job now. It's running rampant throughout the state. He refuses to make a decision. And here he is already in violation of the Constitution for not having introduced this a week ago as voters demanded. And they put this forward. It's a bargaining chip. They're clearly going to dangle a couple of seats in front of the the uh, Democrats to say, look, we'll give you a couple seats back if you vote for this. But but it's still an abuse of the citizenry and it's going to end up in the courts. Right, right. And and the Democrats on the commission, Amelia Sykes and Vernon Sykes, they both said the Republicans, as you said, are pitching this wild proposal so that any minor negotiation seems like a great concession on their part. And yeah, you know, it's just so that Republicans are being so disingenuous about it. They took this ridiculous position that they had no idea how the maps would break down politically. Like, oh, I don't know. We'll just I don't know how people would vote. <laughs> you know, they yeah. try to they try to argue that the constitutional mandate that the new maps not be unfairly slanted was just a goal, not a requirement. I mean, this is you know, this is why why well-meaning public servants never last that long in politics <laughs> because of well, this. It's megalomania by by people that are just infected with their power. And look, it's pretty much guaranteed. We'll see a ballot initiative. It may even make the ballot for next year now to to throw all of these guys out of it, that they should have nothing to do with it because they've proven once again that not only can they not be trusted, but they're willing to betray the vote of the people. It's this week in the CLE. We're joined by Dave Campbell who is our sports manager because the Browns start their season this week. So with the Browns, Dave, are you there? I am here. How are you? Pretty good. I'm glad you could join us today. Uh, we, 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 we have lots to talk about with this, right? This is the highest fan expectation we've had in 20 years. They open Sunday in a nationally televised game with Kansas City. Is all the hype for real? Absolutely. Um, this team, I mean, you look at what this team did last year, going 11-5, and five, winning a playoff game, taking the Kansas City Chiefs down to the very end of the fourth quarter. And this year's team not only has everybody back on offense, but they've revamped this defense and brought in some real difference makers in John Johnson the third. Um, he's a safety. He, he and Anthony Walker Jr., uh, one of the new linebackers that they brought in, are really going to help bring that defense together and organize it, get people in the right place. Two veterans that they brought in by a free agency, and uh, those are some real different difference makers for them. And Miles Garrett last year got COVID fairly early in the season, and while he played all season, he said later that it was it was hot, tough. Is he fully back now? He is fully back, and if you saw any of his off-season workouts, you can see how how much he feels he's fully back. Um, yeah, you could see last year the second half of the season he just was not himself, and in the Chiefs game he ran down a play from 40 yards behind and caught caught a, a Chiefs player from behind and he was huffing and puffing. And you could just see the last eight games that he was not himself. And to make things better for Miles Garrett this season, and people think that he's one of the favorites for NFL Defensive Player of the Year, the Browns signed Jadavian Clowney, who's going to be a bookend pass rusher for them. Um, Jadavian's a three-time pro bowler. He's really going to help take some of the pressure off of Miles Garrett so they can't double-team Miles as much. And the Browns are really hoping they're going to get some strong pass rush, not just from Miles' side, but also from the other side of the quarterback as well. 
Yeah, I mean, you, when you look at this team, it's really kind of a monster defense. If you were a quarterback, you really don't want to face this kind of thing. And with Kansas City on Sunday, they pretty much have an all-new offensive line, right? They do, yeah. They they really saw last year during the playoffs that teams were exploiting them, uh, their offensive line, and getting to Patrick Mahomes more than they wanted. So they invested, uh, they made some trades, um, made some investment in the offensive line. But you know the the Browns are really they're really rely going to rely on on Sunday against the Chiefs on their pass rush and their defensive backfield. And they brought they drafted Greg Newsom the second out of Northwestern in the first round. So the Browns know what what it's going to take to beat teams like the Chiefs. You got to put pressure on the quarterback and you got to be able to cover guys. And they feel like they've really improved in those two areas, and that's why people are really high on them this season. You'd love to see them win this game just because of the Super Bowl. I mean, there were some bad calls in that game that that probably could have gone the other way if the if the, the refs had made the right calls. That so so to win this would be big. But say they lose, say say they play a good game, but they still lose to the to the Kansas City won the Super Bowl a year and a half ago. Um, do, do you think that says anything bad about the season, or do you feel so confident that this team is going to be there in the end that that one loss here or there doesn't matter? Yeah, so you have to remember, you know, I, I used to cover the Chicago Bears in, when, in the 90s, and they would always start, start out 4-2, and 5-1, and one, and people would get excited. Division championships and playoff berths are, are really, and you find out who the really good teams are in November and December. So this is going to be a great game for fans to watch and i know that, that the browns are really looking forward to seeing how they measure up but this year there's actually one more pre one more season game the regular season game there's 17 instead of 16 so instead of this being 1 16th of the season it's now 1 17th and there's a lot of football left to be played if you go down the brown schedule there are not many games and this is different than previous years where you look at the schedule and like oh they're going to lose that one they're going to lose that one i'm counting maybe five six games that you look at the schedule like oh yeah they could lose there the rest of these, the rest of the schedule is really winnable for them, and I could easily, you know, I don't think twelve and five is out of the question. For it's team. interesting what you say about uh, November because last season there was some malaise with Browns fans as you got to about the middle of the season, but then man, did they pick it up? And when they won that last game in Pittsburgh, it was just such a such a big moment. Well, yeah, and even last night, if, if for people who watched the uh, the opening game of the season, uh, Tampa Bay and Tom Brady, I think they started seven and five last season, and then they didn't lose the rest of the way. So that you see a team really grow and develop during the first half of the season, and then it kind of clicks in. And the ones that are going to go deep into the playoffs, you can really see them take off, and that's kind of when you see that happen is November, December. So, as most people know, the Browns are the biggest part of our audience. We get more traffic from stories we do on the Browns than anything else. We have tremendous reporters covering it. You know, we have Mary Kay Cabot and Dan Lobby and Terry Pluto and Scott Patsko. And I mean, it's just it's a it's a huge number of people that that are we throw at this. Alice Williams does his video breakdowns. You're the architect of this. What what's your plan for for coverage this year? Well, one of the things we're really trying to emphasize as we go through the season is that, yes, we want to be doing the in-depth stuff, and Scott and Ellis really go in-depth on the numbers and the film, and Mary Kay and Dan do a lot with features, featuring players and, and analyzing the trends of the team. One thing that I, I always try to remind everybody on our staff is, like, there's a lot of casual fans who haven't been following this from the beginning of the, the Sashi Brown era, and we want to make sure that we're doing stuff that'll bring the casual fan along as well as the really in-depth hardcore fan and so that's a range that we're really going to look to try and cover this season is just give something for everybody the whole way through and um, we're hoping we can accomplish that 
And we've gone deep into audio. The Orange and Brown podcast, Orange and Brown Talk podcast with our Browns team is one of the most popular sports podcasts in the country. And you, with Terry Pluto, have just launched a new podcast that gets into some coverage of the Browns. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Terry and I just started this a couple of weeks ago. It's called Hey Terry, which matches his popular column. And it's just kind of a little bit of everything. If you know anything about Terry, Terry's been covering sports in Cleveland for, for decades. He grew up here, uh, was born and raised here. And um, it's just a way to kind of connect with fans in a different way. Um, we're going to be adding a Hey Terry element to the podcast next week where people can ask him questions and he'll answer. So um, it's just a, kind of a good uh, microcosm of what he does on our website. And we're really hoping it can connect with people. And you can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. Well, Dave, we're excited. This is it. We've been waiting for a winning season for 20-something years now. Uh, looking forward to what you and your folks deliver in terms of coverage. Thanks for joining us today. Anytime. Thanks. Have a good one. Thanks. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. As Joe Biden compels federal workers and people in large companies to get vaccinated against the coronavirus, what are Northeast Ohio companies doing to increase vaccination rates on their workforces? Lisa Garvin, this kind of changed overnight. They were doing a lot of incentives, but based on what Joe Biden says, they don't need incentives. They have the force of the federal government. Well, and I'm waiting for the, you know, the wave of companies who are going to follow Biden's lead in mandating vaccinations or COVID testing among their employees. Um, there were incentives, you know, in and around the Cleveland area, whether they worked or not, we don't know. Cleveland Cliffs was offering $3,000 per worker if 85% of people in their work unit got vaccinated. And it seemed to work there. I mean, they got a 97% vaccination rate at their headquarters here in Cleveland and an 89% vaccination rate at their uh facility in Zanesville. So yeah, I think in the coming days, we're going to see a lot more people jumping on the mandate wagon, which I am all for. That's great. But there are the customer service jobs, you know, restaurants, hotels, other frontline worker jobs are still going unfilled. And I think that these, these people are afraid, number one, of losing employees who, you know, don't want to get vaccinated or, or get tested regularly or that, uh, you know, these customers, uh, some customers at restaurants and other, you know, service uh, businesses have been rude. I mean, I've seen rude behavior at restaurants from customers who see there's one waiter and they're screaming and yelling. And so, you know, I, I, I really hope that the service jobs jump on this bandwagon, but it's, it's a tough call for them. Biden was pretty, pretty clipped in the way he kind of shamed people who won't get the vaccine saying you are hurting us all this this the good news is we talked last week about how metro health took the lead by mandating it for their health workers while the cleveland clinic and university hospitals kind of shamefully did not now they don't have a choice they're going to have to do it because health workers have to do it under biden's order i also heard from other people in town other employers who were saying they wanted to mandate it. They really didn't want to get the blowback because it's become so politicized. J.D. Vance was automatically attacking Biden yesterday that this gives them cover. I mean, for all of the employers that really wanted to have a mandate, now nobody can get mad at them because they're just following the executive order. 
It's a shame that we had to get out the stick. I mean, Biden and DeWine, to his credit early on, were using the carrot to get people. You know, we had Vaximillion, we had other incentives, we had his daily pleas from the governor to please get vaccinated. But um, this is just a, you know, it has to be done. People aren't doing it. It's keeping us from getting back to work. It's keeping us from getting the economy back rolling again. It just has to be done. And I'm glad that Biden did it. He's going to take the blowback and let the chips fall where they may. But now you got to get that shot in the arm. Well, it's leadership, right? I mean, we right. saw leadership from Mike DeWine in the early part of the pandemic, but then it collapsed because he got so afraid of the fringe elements of his party. Joe Biden showed real leadership yesterday that the, the children are getting sick. Children's hospitals are filling up with kids who are getting very, very sick from COVID because as as a country, we haven't embraced vaccines. So he's making people do it. It'll be in the courts and I'm sure there'll be all sorts of screeching and hollering for the Josh Mandels and the J.D. Vances of the world. But but at least somebody is looking out for the safety of Americans when there are so many who are not. Absolutely. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why are Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and Attorney General Dave Yo so set on forcing people on Medicaid to work when the federal government says there's no need for that? Leila Tassi, I thought this issue was settled. Ohio had work requirements that had never started. The federal government looked at them and said, no, you don't need them. Don't do it. And that that was going to be the end of it. But DeWine and Yost say no. Yeah, right. So DeWine is sticking to his belief that it's contrary to Ohioans' values to give taxpayer-funded health care to a person who's not working or looking for work or being trained for work. In a statement this week, he said that eliminating reasonable requirements discourages people from becoming self-sufficient and only reinforces government dependency. This work requirement was approved back in 2019 under Donald Trump. And under that plan, Ohio Medicaid recipients who received coverage under the Medicaid expansion had to work 80 hours a month. And there were exemptions from from this, you know, for caregivers of minor children, people who were experienced physical or mental frailty, and people who are in college or career training or a GED program. But but none of this was ever implemented, as you said, Chris, because of the pandemic. Then the Biden administration eventually rejected the work requirements, saying that although the federal government can permit special programs that go outside the bounds of how Medicaid is set up, they still have to promote the statutory objectives of Medicaid. And this work requirement plan didn't do that because it was likely that people were going to get booted off the Medicaid rolls. And it's also been well documented that the state system for determining Medicaid eligibility is just riddled with errors as it is. So adding this layer of eligibility requirements could be a total mess. But DeWine disagrees. And, you know, as I said, he's sticking to this argument that Healthcare is apparently not a human right and that Ohioans don't want you to have it unless you're working for it. So he instructed Yost to appeal to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to overturn their decision to halt the work requirements. So that's where we are. I wonder (laughs) if there's a new element. When this was originally discussed, there were a lot of experts that said there aren't jobs for all these people, that, that this is unworkable because you can't find them. But we now know there's all sorts of low paying jobs that are unfilled because American workers have had their fill of it. They're saying, I'm not mm-hmm. going to work for poverty wages anymore. And, and employers are responding by raising the pay. But I wonder if Mike DeWine is doing this as a as a gift to people 
who don't want to pay their workers enough money. To I kind have of thought of that too. As I was reading jobs. the story, I had the same thought. I thought, you know what? This goes hand in hand with DeWine's decision to strip out that extra three hundred dollars a month from the unemployment payments, the federal that the federal government was giving people, and uh, you know that didn't work to get people back into their their you know low paying jobs. So here's another way to force people back into that kind of labor. And uh, that's despicable to me, especially when we're talking about health care. So, yep. Okay. Right. I think you're right. We'll see. I, I don't, you never know how these cases end up, but I don't know that this one has much of a chance. I think it might be more grandstanding. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are the two Northeast Ohio school districts to crack the top 10 for coronavirus infections? Lisa Garvin, we've seen a lot of rural districts that have had trouble with this, but it's creeping into Ohio, into Northeast Ohio now. Yes, it is. We have two school districts in Medina County that are in the top six in infections. Uh, number three is Medina. They have 91 students infected and five staff. The Wadsworth School District at number six has 71 students infected and six staff infected. Now, the Cleveland School District is below the top 10. We're at number 14. We have uh, 54 uh, students infected and, and 14 staff. But this is this is like a screaming alarm for, for mask mandates for schools. And some schools seeing these cases rise in their districts and surrounding districts are, are imposing mask mandates now. I wonder why they do it with hard numbers, because if you compare Cleveland schools to a suburban school district, we're talking about a massively bigger school district. But percentage wise, I bet Cleveland would not come in in the top 20 like it is now. And I, I just I wonder why Ohio has chosen to do the hard counts instead of both percentage of student body. I would imagine that that percentage in Medina is pretty darn high. Yes, at 91 still. Well, and it, it, with both school districts taken together, absolutely, yes. So I, yeah, it's... I, I and honestly, I, I haven't read of too many anti-mask mandates in Northeast Ohio as compared to other states like maybe Florida, South Dakota, whatever. Uh, I do know the opposition is out there, but it seems to be, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like we don't see much of that anti-masking at school boards here in Northeast Ohio. Am we I did, but I, I think the way the virus is spreading in schools has caused a lot of those people to shut up because that, you know, it's, what would you rather have dozens and dozens of kids getting sick and going to the hospital and being you know seriously damaged by the virus or make them wear a piece of cloth over their face? I mean, it's, it was a, it was a dopey argument to be making to begin with. And all the health experts have been borne out when kids went back to school, the Delta variant spread like fire. And now we've got the mu variant that's that's creeping into Ohio, and we have to worry about that because they think that it might be vaccine resistant. So I just never understood people sacrificing their children at the altar of ideology, you know, and I, it it just boggles my mind. And they're the these are the ones who are most wanting schools to go back into person. This is how you do it. You make your kids wear masks. <laughs> and it's the ideology of being anti-mask. It's such a silly thing to build an ideology around. But there you have it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
Why did the Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority shut down the waterfront line just before the beginning of Brown season? Aren't the main users of that line football fans? Leila Tassie, this makes no sense to me. You would have thought <laughs> they would have seen this coming. And and now they're going to keep it closed for two years? Yeah, well, you know, they're trying they're trying to say that it might not be two years, but... I don't know. So they announced that they're shutting down the waterfront line for as long as it takes to properly fix what's apparently a very unstable bridge (laughs) spanning Front Street and the Norfolk Southern Tracks at the north end of Flats East Bank. Last October, RTA had suspended service west and north of Tower City for track work and had planned to resume service this summer before discovering problems with this bridge. An engineering consultant recommended that RTA construct these four support towers and that train service not be restored on the line until a permanent solution is designed and built. And for Browns fans who liked to to take the waterfront line, they're going to have to get off at the rapid, uh, get off the rapid at Tower City and walk that half mile. I mean, some people like that because they don't like to transfer trains anyway. But um, the repairs to the bridge, like you said, it could take two years. But RT is saying they might not suspend service that whole time. It's really going to depend on how these stabilizing towers hold up and how extensive the the degradation of the bridge is. Uh, So, you know, I, I volunteer not to ride on the RTA while they're fixing a d- unstable bridge. So um, I, I don't know. I think uh, it sounds pretty, pretty dicey. I was talking to Bob Higgs yesterday when when you know, during the reporting of the story. And he mentioned that he was like, have you ever been on that? You know, have you ever been on that bridge? He's like, it's it's like a roller coaster. <laughs> I was like, geez. So, I, yeah, you would think that they would have seen seen this coming down. Well, the, uh, down the track, but, so to speak. Uh, yeah, I mean, they should have seen it coming. I mean, you're supposed to inspect bridges fairly regularly. On the other hand, you know, the Haslam's built a uh, soccer stadium in Columbus, the whole design of which is intended for people to come walking from the downtown area to the stadium the way they do in Europe. So, you know, maybe the Browns could capitalize on this. It's the Haslam's to turn the walk from Tower City into that kind of European walk to the stadium where people build up their cheer. Who knows? But shame on the RTA for not seeing this coming sooner. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Ohio's coronavirus rate per 100,000 residents took another giant leap in the past week. But which Northeast Ohio counties have among the lowest rates, even if they remain somewhat high? Lisa Garvin, there's no mistaking that the Delta variant is on the march in Ohio. We're seeing numbers we haven't seen since really the end of last year. It just, it just, it's depressing, actually. Um, in, in Northeast Ohio, I, I think this is Ohio stats. Wait, so there's like 582 and a half cases per thousand, 100,000 in the last two weeks. Just last week, that was 472.4 cases per 100,000. So yeah, the needle's going in the wrong direction. There are some, uh, you know, counties that are doing okay. They probably have smaller, wait, let me look at my figures here. I, I feel like I've got the wrong figures here. Um, but so, Cuyahoga was, was on the lower side, which was a surprise to me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, at Cuyahoga, we had 
about 4,413 cases out of a population of 1.2 million. So that's like 357,000 per 100,000 people in Cuyahoga County. Um, some of Geauga, which is, I would say, exurban, partially rural, they saw uh, 320 cases uh, out of a population of about 93,600. And Holmes, not surprising, a, a largely Amish county, only had 134 cases, but the population is 40,900 people. Um, let me see what that figure was. So that's 341.7 per 100,000 population there in Geauga County. Uh, Holmes County, it was 304.8 per 100,000, 134 actual cases out of 40,000 people. So yeah, kind of surprising, but I don't know. I, it's just, it's still not looking good anywhere. You know what would be interesting to do is to pair up the rate per 100,000 right next to the vaccination rate for the counties to see how direct that correlation is. I mean, there'll be a correlation, but I wonder if it's stark that, that the counties that have high, very high vaccination rates have among the lowest rates of this. Of course, we're talking about low rates, but remember when the goal was less than 50 per right. 100,000? Not so and long now, ago. Ohio is it is more than 10 times, 11 times that it's a, we're just in a, in a frightening period. It's in schools, it's, it's everywhere. And, uh, it shows no sign of abating as we head into the cold months. But I do You're find listening it, to this week in this. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I do find go that ahead. Holmes County is kind of odd because like I said, it's mostly homage. It's got a small population, but I, as I recall, their vaccination rate was like below 20%. So the fact that they have a low number of cases, and a low vaccination rate is kind of odd. Maybe they don't have any, you know, maybe they all live so far apart that they're not having much chance to transmit it. Maybe mm -hmm. there isn't enough socializing going on there that it spreads it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. We'll see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That does it for another week of discussions. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to Dave Campbell for joining us earlier. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Monday to talk about beginning of the news week. <laughs> <laughs>